Hi everybody, you're listening to episode 32 of Now and Then. It's Stephen Burrell here and welcome to the podcast. Yes, hi everyone, it's Sandy Ruxton here too. For today's episode we're speaking to Dr Lisa Segura. Among other things, Lisa has done important research into the phenomenon of incels, so-called involuntary celibates, and the Manosphere more broadly, which is a cluster of online groups who are vocally opposed to feminism and claim to be advocating for, for men's rights. Yeah, and so Lisa is a reader in cybercrime and gender in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. And in 2021, she wrote a book called The Incel Rebellion, The Rise of the Manosphere and the Virtual War Against Women, which was published by Emerald. And that's the main thing we're going to focus on today. Um, So hi, Lisa, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. (laughs) Thank you, Stephen and Sandy. I'm delighted to be here. I'm a big fan of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> um, so yeah, to start off with, um, could you perhaps just begin by telling us a little bit about the Manosphere? You know, so for people who haven't heard about it before, you know, what is it and why is it something that perhaps we should be concerned about? Okay, so the term Manosphere, it originated from a self-published 2013 book of the same name by Ian Ironwood, who is interestingly a marketing manager of a large pornography business. So the Manosphere emerges from the original men's rights movement, which is established back in the sort of 1960s, 1970s. Um, and that splintered off from the sort of pro-feminist men's liberation movement. Um, and so what was happening was there was that sort of pushback against women's equality gains, that it was somehow taking something away from men. So nowadays, what we have online, the online manosphere, consists of a network of blogs, forums, websites, videos, memes, um, and it's presented as being dedicated to men's issues, um, and it's comprised of lots of different groups, some of which are united in their sort of shared anti-women, anti-feminist beliefs, although sometimes groups are at odds with each other, and they kind of ostracise each other and mock each other as well. Uh, It's not the most supportive place, hence why when I said it's about men's issues, there was a, you know, a bit of a, 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 there was a tone in my voice Mm -hmm. which was of disbelief. Um, some of the groups cross over with the alt-right online, particularly in regard to white and male supremacist beliefs about traditional gender roles and the belief in upholding cis-heteropatriarchy dominance. Um, some of the groups within the Manosphere are men's rights activists, and they are, I would say, the community that is most aligned with the sort of early men's men's rights movement that I first started speaking about. Um, They are more likely to mobilise offline as well and campaign. Um, But in regards to what they're campaigning for, it's about taking away from women. It's not about genuine men's issues like suicide and mental health and male victims of domestic abuse and sexual violence. Um, It's not, it's about saying women have too many rights. Um, Then you also get a group called Mugtow, men going their own way. And they somehow believe that if they just have no interaction with women, that their lives would be so much better pickup artists also PUAs for short and they're sort of really connected with the sort of self-help movement um, which was 
quite big in the sort of early 2000s and sort of really in the mainstream um, uh, thanks to the media and books like Neil Strauss's The Game um, and plenty of films show pickup artists as well which um, you know kind of in, in a way that seems really appealing um, I know Ryan Gosling's doing fantastic things right now when it comes to Barbie and Ken mm. and he's you know he's there with women um, but I, I mean his earlier film um, Crazy Stupid Love just jumped straight to mind in which he you know he was a pickup artist in that film um, we also have um, then alpha males and they get a lot of attention there's obviously one that is forever in the news <laughs> and I'm just not gonna not gonna name him because he gets way too much consideration as it is and then lastly but there's other groups as well. But I think the main group that really gets the most attention and concern, given their association with some pretty high profile mass attacks and murders, is that of incels, the involuntary celibates as well. And why we need to be concerned about the manosphere is because, as I said, rather than supporting men with those real and valid problems, you know, they are advocating for women's rights to be taken away and encouraging and normalising violence against women. As I understand it, incels have their own sort of shorthand, their own vocabulary to communicate with each other and with, with the wider world. So, for example, they talk about the black pill, you know, uh, and that's a whole ideology. So do you want to explain that a little bit more and, and perhaps tell us, you know, why they use this kind of language and, and terminology? OK, so I think uh, before I sort of turn to the black pill, to give that a little bit of context, um, there, there's other pills that are present within the manosphere. Uh, the red pill and the blue pill predominantly and they take that idea, that analogy from the Matrix, the film series which interestingly is by the Wachowski sisters and is an actual allegory for transgenderism which is something that is not acknowledged or, or welcomed within the manosphere but yet they still continue to use that allegory where in the, in the actual film of the Matrix you had the protagonist Neo who was offered the choice of taking the red or the blue pill they take if he took the blue pill he could just continue in his blissful state of ignorance not understanding the reality of the world whereas if he took the red pill you know he wakes up to the matrix he mm. sees the world how it actually is and that then that allegory in regard to our societies is that men waking up and taking the red pill by being part of the manosphere is that they see that society is unfairly favoured um, in regard to women, um, that feminism is ruining men's lives and that male victimhood is a very real thing um, and that there's no such thing as misogyny, it's all about misandry and the men, because they are the true victims, have that that genuine need to fight back for their very survival and of course that means advocating for violence against women um, and that black pill is the realization the cementation if you will of being an incel so an extension of the red pill where you've woken up and you realize what the world is actually like the black pill is that acceptance that you can't change your circumstances it's immutable it's very nihilistic that this is because 
incels, black-pilled incels, actually black-pilled misogynistic incels because they're not a homogenous group as well. Mm. Um, often, they, no group is, right? Um, but black-pilled misogynistic incels, they believe that due to their genetics, due to how they were born, uh, they were born unattractive, basically, um, that they think their life will forever be... Um, just sad and lonely and they're never going to be a success with women romantically or sexually and that manifests itself as hatred within them that's a justification then to say it's okay to harm women mm. and as I understand it too it's it's not just that you know women won't have relations with them it's particular kinds of women they would like to have relations with is that right yeah yes it is I think so often that kind of that, that little nuance isn't necessarily taken into consideration because I think, you know, it's that presentation of, you know, they're sad, they're lonely, they're virgins, they can't get anybody to sleep with them. Sorry, any women to sleep with them. This is obviously very heteronormative. Um, but no, they are driven by looks. They rate everybody. They think the world is structured on a one to 10 scale of attractiveness. At the at 10 is the chads, the best looking men who are white men because race obviously mm -hmm. plays a very important part in this as well. And then you have the Stacys, the, the most best looking women, um, who again, also white. Um, and incels, they want to be having relations with the Stacys. It's a real contradiction. I mean, that's surprising, right? That there's loads of contradiction in this in these communities. But on the one hand, they they say they're the Zeta males, so they're not even beta. They are the lowest of the lows, the Zeta males. You know, they're they're one on that look scale. Um, but yes, but yet because they are male, this is the male supremacist entitlement that comes through. They should automatically have access to women's bodies, the women that they fancy, the mm. best looking women as well. So it's a complete contradiction mm. in, in how they present themselves. Mm. Mm. So interesting. It's, as you say, so contradictory. But so, yes. so um, why is it that you wanted to conduct research with men in these groups? What, what drove you to do that? So, I mean, in, initially, well, I did my PhD was nothing to do with this topic whatsoever. I, I studied um, online purchasing of pharmaceuticals. Oh. <laughs> but during my PhD, there were a number of events that really made me sit up and, and, and find my path and really embrace, you know, feminism and uh, so, so it just it just things were made clear then about me as a woman and my life experiences uh so there was um so 2014 there was a very high profile attack by a self-identified incel there was gamergate which was a targeted campaign of harassment against women in the games industry there was celebgate where uh, you had the uh, hacking of celebrities' intimate images via their iCloud, and it was obviously then released. It was just all of these things were happening. And uh, on a personal note, I, you know, I, I, I was really sort of invested in these things, and I was reading more into it. Um, I also experienced some online abuse as well because I had the audacity to stick up for other women that were being abused online. Uh, people like Caroline Corrado Perez when she put Jane Austen on the £10 banknote and Stella Creasy, Labour politician 
and Twitter can be a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a toxic cesspit at times and so all of that was kind of happening and so when I finished my PhD which if I'm brutally honest about I kind of wasn't as invested in I wasn't as emotionally kind of um involved with it as I initially set out to be that um I took a, a, a divergence in my sort of research focus and started looking more into sexual violence online and how technology can be used to perpetrate abuses but really through a very gendered lens mm. And in 2017, I worked with a colleague on a project looking at the language of cyber sexism. And as part of that project, we had access to the now defunct um, R slash incel thread. It was the infamous thread that kind of really brought um, incels on Reddit to, to the mainstream public consciousness. And it was because it was it was horrific. It was absolutely awful um full of rape advocacy you know really sick twisted fantasy mm. um and um death threats um suicide ideation and that was actually shut down not because of the sort of rampant misogyny and homophobia and racism but because they were talking about killing chads about killing the good-looking men so that's interesting that when they started uh, advocating for violence against men mm -hmm. that it was taken seriously and closed down mm -hmm. but um yes so we analyzed that that data set and i ended up uh, being interviewed um by the telegraph in 2018 when the toronto van attack happened by another self-proclaimed incel and so therefore my name was sort of out in the in the mainstream linked with this community um and i had people emailing me saying they were incels and they wanted to talk to me to offer their perspective and I took some time mm. to weigh it up and think about the risks associated. But I also thought this is a really interesting topic. I'm going to continue doing it. And so I did not stop researching incels and then the broader manosphere mm. from there. Mm. Could you say a little bit um, about like how you've gone about conducting your research, Lisa? Like what kind of methods you've used? Um... Because presumably, in general, even if you were approached on a few cases, uh, presumably in general, lots of men in these communities are not particularly keen to be kind of uh, to, to yeah. speak to people like yourself. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, how have you gone about doing it? Uh, so that's a really, really good point, actually. <laughs> that yeah, they're notoriously hostile to outsiders. <laughs> that's how they operate. So it's interesting, but also is yeah. Uh, interesting that they wanted to interact with the very worst kind of woman <laughs> as well feminist professional academic oh over 30 so i've hit the wall as well so that was really interesting and i thought you know i kind of wanted to see where that went but in terms of the sort of broader research approach i employed um i conducted an online ethnography so spent three years immersed in incel and manosphere sites some of the dedicated places like incel. I think it started out as incel.me and then incels.co and then changed to incels.is. It keeps getting shut down and rebranding and opening up again. Um, you mainstream sites, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, also Discord to have a look on gaming sites, um, and then also Reddit and 4chan and even 8chan, which 
I really do not recommend doing. <laughs> that was that was awful. Um, and then alongside all of that kind of observation and me really understanding how the communities interact, how they operate, um, you know, their formation and the culture online, I then also undertook semi-structured interviews with 10 former and current self-identified male incels. And how did you find that process, the, like the interviewing? I mean, was it, um, yeah, I mean, was it easy to, to get information out of them? Or yeah, I mean, how did you find that? I mean, what was the experience like of actually speaking to them? I mean, ethics was a challenge to obtain and rightly so, given, let's say, the sort of risky connotations and things. Although it was, mm. I think it was more about um, security rather than sort of my emotional and mental well-being, mm. which I'll kind of get onto. Um, yeah, yeah. But in terms of how I conducted the interviews, that was entirely online. That was via the private messaging function on Reddit um, and also email. I did offer to um, undertake interviews over Skype or Zoom or even the telephone if they, you know, if needed. And obviously, in terms of like where people are located, I was speaking to incels based in Canada, America, um, Italy. And so, you know, obviously take into account the sort of logistics of it as well. Um, But interestingly, nobody wanted to speak directly with me. could be something about the community, of course, and also the you know obviously being a, being a woman as well. Mm-hmm. So it was all textual based, um, and in terms of the practicalities of that, that was you know I found that more secure and also more, I think, convenient for me to really think about how to respond mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, to keep that rapport up, and yeah. also you know it's a really it's, it's a really difficult thing actually because they would come out with obviously some really horrendous things about women. Mm-hmm. Um, so women in general, they can't forget, they couldn't have forgotten they were speaking to a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's obviously going to affect me as well. But mm-hmm. of course I, and, and, and at times it almost felt as if they were trying to get me to apologize from women as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and of course I'm not gonna do that, but at the same <laughs> time, you kind of, you know, you want to keep that interview mm-hmm. going and things as well. So that was, that was keeping that engagement was really quite difficult. Um, there was a lot of challenge to my kind of intelligence, <laughs> you know, as in, well, you're supposed to be intelligent, you're supposed to be this academic, surely you can understand our worldview. And they would send me lots of these pseudoscientific studies, surveys from dating sites and things which apparently validated their perspective, you know, on women being shallow, superficial, um, so on, um, and would try and push to get that reaction out of me. Um, which is, you know, of course, another difficult tension as mm. well. Mm. Um, they, it was also as well, um, because I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm probably just sounding incredibly harsh, but there was also um, something that I struggled with in terms of sympathy as well, where mm. they were talking about mental health, depression, difficult childhoods as well. And on the one hand, that does not cancel out misogyny and homophobia and racism and nothing like that it's not an excuse for it but mm. at the same time these are you know there's that human element which you, I, you know, I didn't really want to lose as well so you know it's kind of trying to to navigate that was quite difficult mm. and 
some some of my interviewees they I could see it was almost like they started treating me like a counsellor mm. <laughs> and and particularly if these are men that struggle to talk to women ordinarily and don't have any interaction with women and here they have a woman that yeah. is listening to them yeah. <laughs> so there was that to take into consideration and then even things like this sort of um, as mentioned like security where um you know, I, my background is cybercrime, so I'm not saying I'm the absolute expert because no one, no one is is immune from the risks of, uh, you know, of cybercrimes and things and um, and fraud online and things. So, you know, I don't want to kind of, you know, put, you know, suggest that to anybody. But um, I kind of went into it thinking, I know what I'm doing in terms of making sure everything about me or, or what is available about me, you know, I'm happy with what can't be accessed in terms of personal accounts and things and yet they still found my personal social media accounts and would request to be a friend or to Mm. follow me and things and you know that that just could be they really wanted to continue the dialogue or a bit more sinister you know was it to intimidate and show that they can find Mm. find me online as well because Mm. actually the community is notorious for targeted harassment and things like doxing where they release your Mm. private information and things Mm. and so again you know it's a it's it's difficult how the different kind of aspects can be perceived Mm. and how did you kind of um i mean you 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 alluded to already but yeah how did you deal with that you know i suppose both in terms of the risks to you but also just your own well-being of dealing with this very you know horrific content on a day-to-day basis Um, and presumably you're still having to do that now yeah i mean how do you deal with that i suppose well i mean I I went into this um, rather naively. <laughs> I was a little bit complacent. I thought I'm a criminologist. You know, we're we're used to you know the you know inhumanity. We're used to you know awful you know the awful things that that we as people can do and say. Um, but yeah, being immersed in it um, and not really having a proper a proper support mechanism to get me through it, it did really affect me and I'm not too, too proud to say that. I spent days and days and days and hours and hours and hours just reading, you know, awful content and mm. you know, it's not just text, it's it's videos, it's memes, it's images. Mm. Um and it, it it did take its toll on me and um and my wake up call was where I started becoming desensitized. Um, you know, it's not to say that I, I just, you know, I, you know, I'm not affected. Of course, I am still really affected by these things. But it was more the case of, uh, you know, it's just like another rape joke or another, you know, something else that's really awful. And I'm not trying to be facetious in the way I'm saying that. And it's that I thought, no, I never, ever want to discount and invalidate the harms that are being presented here so that that was that real kind of no i need to take that step back um and i think the way i sort of managed it as well is to find my people find my mm-hmm. the community of people of, of people who are also sort of doing this research um you know i think scholars who work in the fields of domestic abuse and sexual violence you know i think there's always that risk of vicarious trauma um and i think speaking about these things getting the support from others sharing your experiences um and and another thing that i've sort of done as well is um really push my institution to think about research and well-being and safety more as well um and particularly as well with 
you know, early career researchers and postgraduates and things as well. Well, actually anybody doing this sort of work. Um, too often the researcher's well-being is kind of that afterthought, especially in terms of like, ethics and things. Mm. Um, and so I've been kind of, that, that's a real driver for me. And I've tried to do lots more work in that area as well. Mm. I mean, obviously, you're talking about things which are really quite depressing and difficult and tough. But I wondered if you talked to people who talked to men who who maybe had left the incel community and whether there was any any sort of positive hope in that as well, you know. Um... Ah, <laughs> right. So I did. So some of my interviewees claimed that they had ascended. That is the term oh. to leave behind the incel community. Very biblical. Um, and course I asked so how how you know what, what what led to that and inevitably it was that they had formed a relationship with a woman and they were able to then not be an incel anymore so the another contradiction mm. <laughs> within incels is they say that their circumstances are mutual it can't be changed but most of them and I'm not saying all um want they still want the girlfriend they they don't just want a girlfriend uh, or they don't just still just want sex they want sex and the romantic relationship they want to be desired in return as well they want the the true love as well that is obviously mm. presented to us in you know in our societies and our culture um and so why i'm finding it quite difficult is that there's still that emotional labor and onus on women to resolve the problem from them um mm. as well that um well yeah well if i just got in a it's, it is it's going to that default kind of jordan peterson enforced monogamy kind of argument that oh if they just had a girlfriend they would be okay they wouldn't be hateful and then so when then that was often the reason that they were able mm. to leave incel done behind it was like oh okay so um yeah that that was a little bit depressing for me and even as well um and I feel like such a killjoy but it one one interviewee when I who had said I'm not an incel anymore um I feel very strongly about supporting men to come away from the community because it's really harmful to men themselves as well I do completely agree with that um uh so you know and I said so what okay what can we do as a society then what you know? What should we be doing to support to support men leave behind inseldom? And they would say things like, "Well, you know, actually realize that women do have it easier. Women, ha you know, women mm. get away with a pussy pass in society." And I'm going, "Oh, okay. <laughs> so you haven't really left it behind." And I think, I think, and I think the reason why, the reason why that it's not. This what we're talking about in terms of the incel ideology and belief. We're talking about mainstream societal misogyny and the structures that normalise and validate it mm. as well. It's, it's where it's where I think some of the problems is where we're trying to sort of treat in incels as something unique and exceptional, and it's 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 not. Their yeah. beliefs are supported, reinforced by broader societal structures. Yeah. So they can come away from engaging with those online communities, but they're still going to get those messages elsewhere that it's okay to to view women as less than men and so forth. Mm, mm. Yeah, and um, I mean. <laughs> I think a central argument of your book is that misogyny online, uh, both within and beyond the manosphere, is you know is causing real harm to women and wider society 
both in digital spaces and and you know in the physical world that's that's right isn't it and i yeah. wondered if you could say a bit more about that yeah i mean there's been lots of um lots of attention paid to whether or not incels are terrorists for Ooh. example um given obviously the the high profile attacks that um self-proclaimed incels have perpetrated um and then there's that kind of reaction as i said to like you know how do we deal with the incel problem without as i said as if it is something different unique or the tendency when there has been those and I have issues with this term, but I can't think of another term right now, but the lone terror attacks, mm. the, I won't say lone wolf, but the, the, those lone terror attacks, there's the tendency to go, oh, must have been an incel, <laughs> as if anything misogynistic, any form of misogynistic terror is incel related, or where there's that kind of tendency to look to historical cases, cases long before you had online incel activity, and say, that's an incel, <laughs> that was an incel uh, of particular, you know, high, high profile attacks again, where yes, there was a misogynistic motive. I would say it's it's male supremacism where you've got, you know, the cis heteropatriarchal uh, perspective is elevated to the point where anybody that doesn't fit those norms, you know, the violence against them is justified and warranted. So I think it, it, it's just, it's just sort of, I don't think any solutions are going to be worthwhile or effective until we actually tackle broader societies and cultures about white supremacy and male supremacism and incels are just one part i mean they are a ridiculous almost extreme although i would i mean i think we could probably deconstruct the term extreme as well in this context um but they're just because they, they're sensationalist and they get all the attention but it should not detract from the everyday forms of terror you know that rachel payne speaks about in terms of interpersonal violence you know that women experience and fear on a daily basis. Mm, mm. And you say in your book also that it, it's not just about um, you know hatred of women, violence against women. It, it's also potentially threats to democracy, to to yeah. equality as well, isn't it? And I think you know you mentioned earlier in this interview that the links to the alt right movement as well. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there's something quite powerful in these all these overlaps going yeah. on, isn't there? Yeah. Well, I think that's why I get quite frustrated where sometimes incels and manosphere groups are referred to as apolitical because <laughs> oh they're not necessarily left or right leaning and they're not worried about economics i mean obviously all of those things really do feed in but how can you say they're not political when they are advocating and and encouraging the subjugation of 51 percent of the world's population and moreover the intersectional perspective as well where you know they obviously you know there's the race there's the white supremacist element you know they're trans uh, transphobic homophobic so they really are encroaching on people's lives and moreover you know they are they're validating violence against marginalized persons as mm. well um and so and what they are trying to campaign for, you know, they've, they've got this perspective that there's that rose tinted traditional world um, from decades ago where men were men and women were women and, uh, and we need to get back to that. And therefore, there's obviously uh, progressive and uh, gender equality gains need to be, you know, need to be removed. And that's why they were celebrating on mm. the forums when Roe v. Wade was overturned. Mm. 
Mm. One thing you um, talk about your book as well, though, Lisa, just to complicate it a little bit, is uh, as far as I'm aware, this isn't just about like angry white young men, is it? It is actually, you know, it, there's a variety of different groups of men who are in these communities. And could, yeah, could you just yeah. say a little bit about, about that? Yeah, I think there's a bit of a misconception that's sometimes presented, as he said, you know, that, you know, there's just sort of white young men thinking about the Internet and how, you know, and sort of Western supremacy and what takes privilege and front stage of the Internet. There is going to be that Western focus. It was quite so I think until you sort of really do a deep dive into these communities on the surface, it does seem that it is dominated by that, so that white Western focus. Mm. Um, but it, within the incel culture itself, you know, race is so important because race itself can be a reason why somebody would consider themselves to be an incel as well mm -hmm. because see, white is favored white as per you know our western dominance in the media and culture um it's seen as the most attractive so therefore men of different races call themselves and i'm not going to use the terms because they're really derogatory and racist but they they revert to stereotypes about different ethnicities um calling themselves that cell um and that that is a re that can be a reason as well not just their facial features or their height or their weight but mm. as i said their, their race really really mm. features as well um i am aware that um there are there are members of the gay community as well that have in that have incel communities but I think this is why it's really important to recognise that incels are not homogenous. And that's why I tend to try and make that distinction and say, you know, misogynistic incels um, who are... And, and, and unfortunately, the majority of, of, of incels now, and certainly the term has foremost been misappropriated, I would say, by misogynistic men, men that have that kind of agenda against feminism and women. Um, but yet... I don't, you know, we do need to kind of consider the intersectionality within the community itself as well. Another thing as well, which you, um, which you talk about in your book is about, well, and you mentioned it already as well, that, you know, a lot of these men are clearly not very happy, right? It doesn't, you know, what being in this kind of incel community doesn't seem to be working out very well for them in terms no. of improving their quality of life or anything like that. Um, so yeah, all sorts of issues around depression, anxiety, loneliness, suicidal ideation, yeah, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about that, about, you know, the, the harmful impacts these communities are having on men themselves without in any way, as you said, excusing any of their behaviour? Yeah. And also yeah. perhaps how that might connect to why some men might actually, you know, become involved in the first place in these groups. Yeah, um, yeah. absolutely. Um, there is a this, this growing attention within the scholarly literature about uh, the link between depression, mental health, anxiety, and even neurodivergence um, uh, with with incels as well. Um, and and I you know I think it's definitely something we need to we need to consider. I think we absolutely need to exercise caution at not stigmatizing people as well you know we don't want to sort of suggest that all incels are mentally unwell or neurodivergent or that anybody or all men who are mentally unwell or neurodivergent would be susceptible to becoming an incel as well we certainly don't want to go down that route as well um, and without not being sympathetic to these very real issues they're, they're not mutually exclusive as well one doesn't cancel out 
you know, really offensive <laughs> and hateful behaviour as well. It is possible to be mentally unwell and be misogynistic. <laughs> um, it's not the reason for it. Again, as well, not stigmatising. So I think I think there's that kind of nuance often isn't explored properly. Um, and so, for example, with the Toronto van attack in 2018, the perpetrator of that, that was his defence, or he tried to use that as his defence, that he's autistic and he wouldn't be able to appreciate the severity of his actions, driving down a sidewalk and, and running over pedestrians. He could not understand the ramifications of that by being autistic. Um, the judge threw that out. I'm obviously very glad about um, because again, how awful <laughs> to stigmatize, you know, mm. neurodivergent people to say that they wouldn't understand harmful behavior. And I think as well, what is particularly insidious as well about these communities is they are, I think they're quite, they, the way they present the ideology, the, the, excuse, the excuses, the reasons for all, all individual men's problems is, you know, it's quite seductive in the sense that it's external, it's not you, you can't help the way you were born, it's women and society that is the problem. And they present it in a very, so obviously uncritical, black and white fashion. Um, and so I think, again, trying to be quite, quite, careful in how I word this um, I think people who may struggle socially and um, be a little bit isolated um, just you know are really having a hard time perhaps in their lives and struggling to make sense of this world um, particularly at maybe at adolescence as well mm. when hormones are rife that mm. you're presented with this very appealing narrative um, say which just you know it's it's uncomplicated almost as well mm. um and you know as i said it's it's manipulative it draws mm. it draws men in um and then when they are in the notion that it was going to be all supportive i mean it's you get you know you get your views validated and reinforced and that can be quite appealing the in-group out-group phenomena for example but most of the time when they're in they're just told that they're worthless, they should hate themselves, self-harm mm. and suicide is encouraged. Mm. <laughs> so obviously the, you know, it's, it's difficult to understand the appeal of being an incel. Mm. Mm. It's quite sad really, isn't it? Because I yeah. suppose a lot of the reasons why a lot of these young men or men in general might feel kind of sad and alienated in the first place probably have a lot to do with patriarchy and patriarchal definitions of masculinity which say that men shouldn't you know express their emotions or ask for help or develop close meaningful relationships with other people but then actually they end up you know kind of supporting the very system which might be at the root of a lot of their problems but um but but yeah i mean um one thing I was wondering as well, it seems like perhaps often uh, in the past, um, you know, these kind of manifestations of misogyny um, haven't been taken very seriously by different agencies, you know, the, the law, uh, the police, uh, also in the media or social media companies, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, how would what would you say about that, about the response, you know, the kind of more official response to this issue? And um, and in your view, what would need to change, I guess? So far, it's, it's been that sort of terrorism kind of response, you know, mm. incel terrorism, you know, in the debate, are they, aren't they? And to exceptionalise them, see them as something spectacular and unique mm. and mm. not appreciate how, where they fit in the broader context of male supremacist structures. And I think until 
approaches take that into consideration and see misogyny, male supremacism and white supremacism as drivers of all forms of terrorism, I think then then we, you know we're gonna we're gonna have these problems, but yeah, I mean it goes back to even like where you know why misogyny wasn't a hate crime, and I know that there's loads of there's this, and I think there's obviously complex arguments on both sides of that debate too, but where the response is things like, oh, it's just too big a problem, or it would it would break the system <laughs> because can you think of all the referrals that would end up to prevent if misogyny was put on it, you know, and you know because we have this significant phenomena where women are dying you know on you know on such a regular basis that it's and it's just it's just too difficult to to try and tackle then surely that you know then I mean it seems like common sense to me then surely then you would try and actually do something about it but because there's no kind of quick easy fix as in incels oh there's a particular brand of terrorism now incels you know they're not like other terror groups they're not like other extremist groups they are part of broader structural <laughs> misogyny so um it's not just a quick de-radicalized incels program basically mm -hmm. um because this is as I, and i think when i talked about earlier that you know they're still going to be exposed to many of those ideas that underpin the incel ideology anyway in our societies and until we dismantle them then this is you know it's just it's just still going to continue mm. can i just ask one thing about the social media companies as well because uh, my, as i understand it some of them like um facebook and so on have got got a bit better about closing some of this stuff down but does it then go to other you know less um uh less public forums and is that possibly even more dangerous that you know yeah. is there a I whole mean, there must be a whole debate about that really about what social media companies should do i think that that's kind of well established in the kind of terrorism extremism literature that um there's always that chance that where you shut down certain sites that they'll just move elsewhere and become more extreme, more covert, more clandestine. Um, and that, yeah, we, we have seen that sort of happening. But actually the, what, the, the point you said about some of the sort of mainstream sites then um, and how they're kind of dealing with this and where they say in their terms and guidelines that they um, don't allow hate speech, they don't allow mm. misogyny and things. Um, but it's really not hard to find this content if you know what you're looking for because the way it's presented um it's, it's like it, you mentioned the the lexicon the specialist language earlier so certain terms that unless you know they will go under the radar mm. um and yet they're still going to propagate those same hateful ideas so um I, I recently uh published a paper with one of my phd students and she undertook research looking at TikTok. Um, and TikTok are really quite explicit saying they don't allow incels, they don't allow um, the the kind of ideology that goes with incels. And yet certain terms that are related to incels are really easy to find. Or what they do is they change um, symbols and numbers for letters as well in account names. So, and they continue to remain. And then there's no oversight. There's videos that are just, you know, really you know, misogynistic and still propagating the same ideas um so i think having that real understanding of 
like the the worldview, the philosophies and how they operate is really needed rather than just, oh, we, you know, yeah, we don't allow misogyny, but it's, okay, what is your understanding of misogyny as well? Mm. What do you mm. class as misogyny? Do you just class, you know, the, the extreme forms rather than the kind of continuum of all the things that kind of add up to, you know, to hating women? Mm. Uh, you said a minute ago that you didn't think there was a sort of um, de-radicalisation de programme that could deal with this stuff is that is well that right I think there is I think I think they're looking in the wrong places though I think um I think I would say domestic abuse perpetrator programs are probably the best places to start because they are well equipped to dismantling that patriarchal supremacist misogynistic perspective aren't they with mm. with, with with male perpetrators so when, when we, you ordinarily talk about kind of de-radicalizing Asian programs in, in terms of like terrorism um, and counter-terrorism that is never featured anywhere frustratingly when most perpetrators or certainly these sort of lone attackers I hate that term again but I'll say it is that um, they ha they have histories of domestic abuse um, mm. and sexual violence and that is separate so say those sort of programs they they're not they're not equipped to kind of as I said tackle misogyny but there are, there's obviously exceptional work that has already been done out there in the sort of sort of domestic abuse service um, sphere. Mm. And how do you think um, it's possible to, is it possible to prevent young men, you know, becoming seduced by these kinds of communities? Yep, it's got to be a multi-pronged approach. So obviously sort of mentioned already um, what tech companies can do. So... Yeah, I mean, they they certainly need to be far more accountable than they already are. You know, and, and actually the way that algorithms and echo chambers work, that young men and boys are not just being targeted with this content because most of the time that's what's happening. This sort of content, the content that sells, that gets the likes and the attention and makes money for the platforms is mm. what is promoted rather than healthy content. Um, so that sort of counter narrative needs to be promoted far more. Um, obviously, education it's, it's key as well, you know, much earlier sort of work with young people in schools about gender equality, healthy relationships, consent, you know, all of those mm. things um, need to be, you know, need to be discussed. Um, you know, there, there are there are obviously things that, that we can all be doing as well, um, but it's structural. I think we absolutely need to be kind of recognising that these are not just problems that are contained online. Mm. As one example of that, perhaps, um, I can't help but think about, you know, of course, something else which is hugely influential online is pornography. And I know you've done research which has looked at some of the links between the kind of discourses that are used within pornography and the kind of discourses that are used in, in incel communities and other kind of manosphere spaces. And so perhaps that gives a good example of how actually the things you're talking about are much more mainstream yeah. in society. Do you want to talk a little bit more about, about that research, about what you found? Yeah, there? so that, that paper, uh, which was published with uh, my colleague Alessia Tranchisi, which is based on the Language of Cybersexism project that I worked on, mm -hmm. um, where we compared the language of incels and the language of pornography um and we you know we're not we're not saying that's you know that, that that's all as misogynistic basically we're just saying they are different manifest manifestations of the same misogyny um you know obviously 
And when it comes to pornography, I think one of the one of the many issues, but one of the main issues is that what is readily accessible today um, is the violent, is the extreme, is the objectif- objectifying, the dehumanising of women. Um, that is what is just readily available on mainstream platforms. It's not, you know, it's not some sort of um, kind of a specialist area that people need to go looking for. That is what young people can just easily access um, now. And obviously what what that is doing and then what incels are doing with their sort of language as well is basically reducing women to mere objects. And then when you have people that are dehumanised, that's obviously a precondition to say, it's okay to be violent towards them. And obviously within pornography, you know, the name calling, um, it, it's it's a way of saying to the viewer um, that even if that woman is looks like she's visibly you know in pain, she's really not happy. But she, you know it doesn't matter. She, you know it, it's okay to do that to her, and that's very much sort of how incels will speak about women. And it's I suppose it's the reinforcing of those tropes as well, isn't it? Those kind of really misogynistic tropes um, about gender. You know that women will automatically be submissive. That men will always want sex. You know, and they're dominant. That's what that's what drives men. You know, and that's really you know patronising to men. You know, that's all you're about basically. Um, and the you know women enjoy sexual mistreatment as well. Um, you know, it's almost like the incel topia as well, isn't it? That you know, women are just automatically subservient to men. You can do whatever you like to them. Women's bodies are readily accessible. And of course, that message then, you know, with pornography into young young boys as well, it's their expectations then as mm. well, and then also to girls that oh well, this is all my worth as mm. well. Mm. Um, and actually, really, you know, there's there's obviously many many things that are shocking within incels. And one one thing that sort of really come out through my work as as well is where they reinforce that trope about um, no means yes, as well. And they they really argue that rape rape is a is a construct um, that uh, it entirely depends on who's doing it. Um, that if it was a a chad the alpha good looking man he could never be a rapist because a woman will always want that basically um to me that's very pornified (laughs) as well i think but again that message what message is that saying to to young young boys and girls isn't it and it's really quite scary yeah I just uh, just quickly, just as the last question, Lisa, one other thing I was just wondering was, um, I, sp- I feel like we've been on a bit of a journey, haven't we, that for a long time the media had no interest in the fact that actually there is all these misogynistic groups out there, but now suddenly incels and people like them are, are getting a lot of media attention uh, to the point, as you said, there's almost this kind of like there's this yeah. fascination uh, and exoticization of them. Um, but but how, do, how do you think we can balance that as well, like, that we don't you know, inadvertently end up giving like the kind of attention that these groups might actually be craving? Like, so how can we address the risks that they pose whilst yeah. also not giving them too much of a profile I guess <laughs> such such a good point I really appreciate it thank you Stephen um yeah I was one of those severely frustrated years ago going please take us seriously yeah. the, you know it just seemed ridiculous if you spoke about it that there were these communities with their own language saying these things it was like 
you know, weirdos, kind of weirdos mm. on the internet in the darkest mm. corners, nothing to worry about. And then, of course, you know, they, there was really awful mass attacks and then people sit up and take notice. Mm. And now, as you said, it's shifted to the other way where everything, every, <laughs> you know, every attack, you know, is, mm. is incel related. Everything that's misogynistic is incel. That's mm-hmm. the de facto, the default. Um, and also, as well, I think just you know, all that attention is detracting from you know, everyday forms of, of violence and abuse mm-hmm. you know, against, against women and marginalised people. You know, we, we should never forget that. And we should never kind of, you know, we should always remember incels are a part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then the, the other point of you know, inadvertently giving them too much attention. So um, we've got the Institute for Research on Male Supremacism that have released guidance about media reporting on incel-related attacks. I mean, mm. first of all, there's that don't jump to the assumption it is an incel-related attack and start using that term straight away because it validates them. It's given, you know, it's basically platforming them. So st- mm. don't do that until there's absolute evidence. But you know, that obviously doesn't always happen. Um, but one of the key things is not to say their names, is not mm. to say perpetrators' names. And I something I want to strongly adhere to, even though um, I did hold my hands in the air, use their names in the book and kind of explained mm. why. Um, but I really tried centering the victims more anyway. Mm. But, um, but yeah, do not use their names. Um, we've seen in various attacks where uh, they're referencing each other as well so we know that phenomena of copycatting is is happening mm. as well so we absolutely need to take to responsibility and think you know we can't we can't be adding to that as well i mean within incels they communities anyway they make these perpetrators into deities mm-hmm. and martyrs for the incel cause so we do not want to be adding any further credence to that as well um and then i suppose it's um it's, it's, it's within the research. There's so much research coming out now. And uh, yeah, I'm really glad about that because I say the issue is being taken seriously. But again, it shouldn't. And it's also just saying that incels are the only bad thing online mm. when it comes to misogyny. <laughs> so can we look mm. at other, other groups as well? Mm. Um, but also the kind of debates that are happening that there needs to be direct interaction with incels for work to be valid, um, that we need to have the voices to understand their experiences. And I realized, you know, yeah, I actually did interview incels, um, but something I had to navigate through was not just taking it at face value. These are a group renowned for performativity. They are well aware of audience as well, and they will try and present themselves and rebrand themselves in a way that is more palatable as well. And we'll try and play to the victim narrative. So we've got to be so careful. And I would say as well that we're not platforming other extremist groups and saying we absolutely have to hear their voices. <laughs> so, because we know the problems that, 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 that actually disseminating those narratives could draw people in as well mm. so you know so you it's, it could just be misguided but i think we you know at the worst it's really dangerous so we just absolutely need to be so careful in a say just sensationalizing them to the point where it detracts from all other forms mm. of violence mm. against women mm. well thank you thank you so much lisa for all of that and for all of the work you're doing which is so important it's great and thank you for coming on the podcast <laughs> yes. thank you thank, thank you. you so much I and mean, i think there's there's things for us uh, to learn for the podcast there as well yeah. so uh, we yeah. take note of what you were saying just a moment ago about not naming Absolutely. so it's yeah. yeah yeah useful yeah so Stephen, that was a great discussion with lisa i don't know how she manages to 
be so so positive when she's researching such grim topics. But uh, there were one or two challenges in there, as I think we, we mentioned during the, the podcast, for us, actually, about, you know, uh, whether we name some of these high-profile individuals who've committed mm. pretty horrendous acts. And uh, mm. I think I was convinced after our conversation that we shouldn't do so, even though we've done so in the past. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, the, clearly the, the, the whole notion of giving a platform to some of these people yeah. is is a tricky area and uh yeah i worry a little bit that the podcast is doing that so uh, wh- what did you think yeah no i think that is such a difficult one isn't it which i really struggle with because on the one hand yeah it feels like we need to shine a light on these groups that are out there and to show the extent that misogyny is is entrenched in different parts of our society and, and the risks that that poses um but yeah at the same time there is such a, a danger there isn't there of, of actually giving more of a platform more attention which is exactly perhaps what these groups want. So I think, yeah, just taking that seriously and being careful about that is definitely something to to think about, isn't it? Um, yeah, another thing which I think about is, you know, why we actually started this podcast in the first place. And I think one of the very first thoughts about it was that, you know, well, hang on a minute, there's so much content out there on the internet, these different groups, which are, you know, quite harmful, really, and and are kind of sucking lots of men and boys into them and having a very detrimental impact on many men and boys themselves and also offering them, you know, quite misogynistic, damaging ways of looking at women, looking at the world, looking at themselves. And, And I just feel like, you know, for me personally... You know, feminism has had such a positive impact on me and my life, and it's it's helped me to grapple with some of the kinds of issues which, no doubt, many of these these young men are struggling with about things like loneliness and isolation and alienation. Um, so I feel like you know we have a duty, as it were, you know, to um, to share with other men and boys the positive things that feminism can offer them and how it can help them to deal with these problems they might be experiencing. So countering some of the narratives you might hear from from the manosphere, and as Lisa said, more broadly in society, these kind of misconceptions which are held about feminism as if it's somehow the enemy of men or or something like that. Yeah, I was interested about uh, answer on how. Uh, young man might sort of exit so to speak from Mm. the manosphere you know Mm. and I think she was saying it was pretty pretty complicated and and difficult really and I can imagine that there are cases where you know young men or adult men may say oh yes I've left all that behind but actually Mm. as, as she was indicating some still you know carry a lot of the sort of uh, messaging and ideology and baggage from their time, you know, um, immersed in the manosphere. And mm. uh, I guess in there also is the issue about their relations with women. She said that's one of the mm. main ways that, that men will um, leave. But mm. at the same time, you wonder about what some of those relationships might be like if, if the men are still, you know, fairly steeped in, in the culture. Mm. Um, and whether there's actually a risk to, to women in that case. Um, and also that some of those relations might uh, uh, fall apart or actually, you know, women might be harmed and men mm. might retreat into the manosphere as well. We didn't really discuss that, but I, I think there there is definitely a risk of that, you know, just because mm. men might say they've changed, well, doesn't mean to say they have. I mean, you know, obviously one tries to be positive about the potential for change. Um, and I, I, you know, as you were indicating, I think that's part of the sort of pro-feminist case mm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it's it's not a straightforward path away from mm-hmm. the manosphere, is it? No, absolutely. And you feel like, you know, if one of the solutions surely has to be about relationships and positive, healthy relationships, 
with other people, you know, that that can offer some kind of way out of all of this and away from the loneliness and the isolation. But yeah, at the same time, there's such a risk, as Lisa said, of then putting all the onus on women, right, to basically heal these men mm. um, through their relationships with them, which is putting a huge responsibility on on women. I suppose for me, it, it does highlight, doesn't it? Again, as Lisa said, that just the need for there to be much more work going on, really, with with men and boys from a young age, you know, in school, but also more broadly in society, engaging with them about issues of masculinity and gender equality and violence and abuse and because of the fact that there are these groups out there, but I feel like we're just not really, you know, helping equip young men with the, the critical thinking skills to be able to navigate these things um, in ways where actually they do push. I'm sure many young men actually do push back against them. And I think that's the thing as well we have to remember, isn't it? I'm sure many men and boys will be completely, you know, appalled by this stuff. Um, but yeah, I think we could be engaging with them a lot more about it um, and about things like pornography, which are, yeah, things which are considered much more mainstream, which they'll be encountering um as well yeah mm. another thing I, th I thought was interesting was about the whole uh, method for for research undertaking research in this area you mm. know and how, just how difficult that is and and you know again some of the the risks that there are for researchers and, and you know after we stopped recording we actually talked about uh, Laura Bates's book men who hate women and and mm. you know that that was a more sort of journalistic take and and Laura had mm. actually um, in a sense gone undercover by being anonymous within many of these fora and mm. uh, Lisa was saying yeah there is there is an issue there uh, you know would that get through a, a university ethics committee you know that mm. you're actually uh, dissembling who you who you are anyway I think it's you know it's an interesting area for debate mm. how do you actually undertake research in this area yeah yeah and how do you do that with people who who as Lisa said might be you know, trying to put out certain ideas about who they are, or they might like the attention, or they might deliberately try and like, you know, give you a certain impression of themselves, which actually might not be, you know, so connected to what the reality of the incel communities are. Like, it's a very complex one, isn't it? Um, and also, I think, you know, what she talked about right at the beginning about actually, there is a range of different groups within mm. the manosphere, mm. and the incels are getting all of this attention. But actually, yeah, I mean, these kind of men's rights, like anti-feminist groups have existed you know, since the 70s and 80s, haven't they? And actually, there's always been this kind of vocal backlash to feminism. So I suppose, yeah, we need to be putting our attention on, on all of these different groups um, without at the same time boosting their profile, I guess, mm. um, and, and trying to engage with men um, so that they don't actually, you know, slip into these kind of very misogynistic ways of thinking in the first place. Mm. And I guess that plays to, you know, one of the sort of central messages of her, of her book about the, the links between the online and uh, yeah. and real worlds yes. and how you know people like trump are mm. legitimizing misogyny yeah. but actually they're drawing quite a lot of their messaging from some of these uh online fora as well yeah yeah um so yes. the challenges are absolutely massive yes yes well there's a lot to think about um but i think that's it for today isn't it sandy yeah i think that's enough from us yeah, but thank you so much, everybody, as always, for listening. Uh, do subscribe, if you haven't already, on your podcast app. And if you'd like to help share it now and then, uh, please feel free to leave a review or share it among your friends, colleagues, family. Um, and we'll be back with another episode soon. And also do contact us at nowmen at gmail.com if you have any uh, questions or comments at all. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye now. <laughs>